So a big welcome to our live audience for coming to this episode of Digital Health Investor Talk. Today's topic is get it right first, de-risking product strategy and market access in a time of uncertainty. I'm your host, Stephen Wardell. I'm the managing partner of Wardell Advisors, a digital health advisory firm and the author of The Future of Digital Health. Wardell Advisors is helping digital health companies address issues around growth, fundraising, and strategic alternatives. Our guests today are Laurel Sweeney, the founder and principal of Access Strategies, where she assists innovators in developing successful market access strategies. She also is a member of the AMA's Digital Medicine Payment Advisory Group and is a hospital trustee. And Amy Siegel, the co-founder of S2N Health, a company providing strategic advisory and AI customer intelligence software to healthcare technology companies. Amy is all uh, S2N has worked with over 160 healthcare companies since its founding in 2011. Amy is also a thought leader in the medical device industry, training and mentoring innovators through MassMedic, uh, MedTech Innovator AdvaMed, and other global organizations. This show is being recorded as a podcast. This is not investment advice, and we are not investment advisors. We'll be talking for about 40 minutes. After that, I'll be taking call-ins from our audience. In order to do more than just listen, you need to register for an account with Callin. To register, you can access Callin at callin.com or through the Callin social podcasting app in the App Store. The Callin platform works similarly to Clubhouse Rooms and Twitter Spaces for a modern social audio experience. Once you've registered, you can press the website's Callin button or use the text chat to indicate that you want to speak up and join the discussion. If you'd like your question or comment to be anonymous, you can email me at stephen at wardelladvisorsllc.com. That's stephen at wardelladvisorsllc.com. Um, I'll start with some, some news. So the stock market continues to be bearish for the last week. Um, the IPO window remains closed, uh, meaning that later stage venture and growth deals uh, are are not getting done and not getting priced. Um, and the sentiment of the stock market remains risk off. The venture fundraising market for digital health remains slow paced and restricted. The Fed has announced that it will do one more rate hike to fight inflation, which the market initially viewed bullishly. Um, that final rate raise could also be a signal for venture investors to get off the sidelines and invest their dry powder and we'll continue to monitor that. But recent inflation numbers were also worse than expected, which the market, market has taken bearishly, especially for growth stocks. In the digital health sector, we, can, we continue to see more layoffs announced than fundraises. Um, SaaS valuation levels have pulled in uh, to median levels of seven to eight times forward revenue from their high of 17 times forward revenue uh, in 2021. Coming up, we have some industry conferences. March 3rd to 16th in San Diego is the Next Med Health Conference, the latest creation of Dr. Daniel Kraft, a leading scientist, physician, and futurist in digital health. Dr. Kraft organized the Exponential Medicine Conference as part of Singularity University, and he's a friend of the show. Next Med Health is a conference on innovation that is catalyzing and accelerating the arrival of a new human-centric technology-enabled health age. We have a discount code for our audience. You can use Wardell-750 for a discount uh, on registration for 
the next med health conference. Um, the, the, that code is Wardell 750. Um, South by Southwest is coming up this year and it has a health and med tech track on March 10th to 13th. I'll be attending South by Southwest this year and I found it, found it useful in the past to meet with leaders of young med tech and digital health companies. If you're in my audience and you'd like to meet up at South by Southwest this year, drop me a line at Stephen at WardellAdvisorsLLC.com and we'll set something up. I'll be reporting also back to you all on how good the South by Southwest conference is for the digital health leader to attend who wants to meet up with uh, med tech companies and, and investors. And the health conference and Chime are combining to host the Vive conference this year on March 26th to 29th in Nashville. The health people put on a great fun show and the Vive event is targeted at innovation in healthcare services. And it's a good show to attend if you're a digital health leader who sells into provider organizations and you'd like to connect with innovation executives at provider organizations and with VCs. So with that, um, Amy and Laurel, do you guys have any, um, any healthcare news you wanted to highlight before we jump into talking about uh, product strategy and market access? Well, I, I just got news from you that it's pronounced Vive, not Vive. <laughs> That's news to me. But um, how about but I you? think, yeah, I think, you know, um, this is not new news, but it's certainly important news about the end of the public health emergency and how that's going to impact the market in terms of telehealth. Um, because uh, there were a lot of sort of solutions and innovations uh, developed during COVID, and some of these will be uh, not able to be used anymore, um, or there will be changes in the rules around using them. Um, there were some permanent changes, particularly around behavioral health, because one of the things that came out of the pandemic certainly is the need for more behavioral health providers that we just don't have bodies for. And so um, the uh, Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023 um, did extend some of these flexibilities, including audio only, where some of these services can be delivered. Um, and this is primarily around Medicare, I will say, but um, but there were also some other types of things about uh, who audio only and for other conditions, but those are only extended to 2024. So the news will be what's going to happen with those, I think, and how are we going to, uh, you know, how are we going to either extend them or does it have, it, a lot of it's going to have to go to Congress. And I will say this is Medicare. So Medicaid programs by state can make their own decisions um, in many of these areas. Um, and also commercial payers uh, can do what they want. So it's a little bit of a fragmented market in terms of the payer market as to who's doing what. Would you say, Amy? Yeah, yeah no, I, I think that there'll be a lot of impl implications to watch there. And do I get another shot at my news item since mine was? You do. Yeah, so um, I think somewhat related to that, uh, I went to a meeting, a virtual meeting last night of the Medicare Max, which doesn't sound exciting <laughs> there as well, Laurel. Yeah, uh, because they put out a notice. So the Medicare Max, they're the administrators of Medicare payments. So Medicare doesn't pay doctors directly. They use these regional administrators. Laurel, correct me at all if I'm wrong. But uh, no, that's correct. <laughs> so I was there because they had called a meeting to talk about the evidence behind the remote patient monitoring codes. 
Um, and just in announcing that they wanted to talk about it and the evidence behind it um, cre created a bit of a stir. I think it, certainly the connected health community, which touches on the digital health community, took it as a, maybe a not so wonderful sign that they were calling this meeting to discuss this topic. Um, not that it was a meeting to decide anything. It was just to gather information, but it was very helpful. I don't know if you thought so as well, Laurel, just to hear the angles that people were using in, you know, the RPM codes were established in 2019. Laurel knows this much better than I um, to really cover, you know, home monitoring of, of, uh, patients with chronic conditions or monitoring of therapy. That's the RTM codes. They're kind of sister codes, I guess, similar codes. Um, and so they've only been out since 2019. And now Medicare is basically, or the MACs are asking themselves, hmm, what's the evidence behind these codes to support that we should be paying for them as they're seeing, you know, claims come in um, for those codes. So it was just really interesting. My, my favorite comment from the evening was around, standard of care. So when you think about evidence for any of these new therapies or digital health solutions, you know, the, the knee-jerk reaction from a payer is to say, well, how does that compare to standard of care? And there were a lot of arguments about, well, is that the right threshold? I mean, if you always compare to standard of care, first of all, you'd never advance anything because maybe standard of care is not so great. And secondly, not everyone has standard of care. If your technology improves access to care for people for whom standard of care is not attainable, you know, maybe maybe that's the wrong comparator. It, it sort of misses a whole a health equity, health access issue. I thought those were interesting comments, but that is a space to watch for sure. Uh, and a lot of people. Yeah. And I think just to give you a little context, um, typically when you have codes, CPT codes particularly, um, they only tell the payer how to pay, but the payer decides in coverage whether they're going to pay. What was interesting about the RPM and RTM codes is there are no coverage policies for those, either by commercial payers or Medicare. So the codes have almost acted as kind of a de facto coverage policy in that if you follow and meet the requirements of the codes, which you need to do anyway, regardless, um, Medicare paid for them. But the utilization, as you probably know in the audience, has creeped up quite a bit. And there are some uses of it that have raised some questions. There's also the way, in this, not to get into the weeds, but how CPT codes are priced. And, um, and so, so some of the payments might be not in line because we developed those on the DEMPEG. Um, it really in response to congestive heart failure monitoring, because that was what was out there right now. And it was a start. It was a toe in the water to be able to pay for some of these monitoring equipment. But these these codes will evolve. And I think payers will start to think about under what circumstances in coverage am I going to pay for these? So um, so that's kind of the context of that. So we don't know what's going to happen as a result of this hearing. It's going to be a few months. But like Amy said, I would definitely keep your eye on that. And if you're banking your whole business case on remote monitoring codes, you might want to take a step back here and just think about that. So. And when, when you say remote monitoring codes, are you talking here about, um, you know, maybe a, a digital health vendor is selling a service to providers where those providers can treat diabetes and hypertension with patients using devices at, at home to send readings into to physicians is this is this the sort of the what what these codes are covering 
Yeah, there's two sets of codes. There's the remote physiologic monitoring codes, which are things like weight, blood pressure, physiologic measurements. And there's a certain set of circumstances under which on who can bill those and under what circumstances. And then Amy mentioned the new remote therapeutic monitoring codes, which are somewhat the sister codes because they the payments map to each other, but there's different circumstances. So for musculoskeletal or respiratory conditions, um, for example, you can bill for the device that's using to monitor those. A physical therapist can monitor those. So there's different circumstances, but yes, all in all, it's a way for the physician to make clinical decisions based on different types of data um, that are important for him or her to follow to be able to know if a congestive heart failure patient has his his or her weight goes up um, all of a sudden, that's typically a sign that there may be something wrong. And so you want to adjust that patient's meds in order to um, keep them out of the emergency room or get them uh, exacerbation where they end up hospitalized. So that's kind of how it works. So when these codes came out in 2019, that was considered to be a huge you know, win for, um, for digital health and for companies that were going to assist physicians by using technology, maybe in the home of the patient. And the fact that there's hearings on these um, you know, could mean that uh, it, it could actually you know, um, restrict the use. Is that, is that the concern uh, of, yeah. of our codes? It yeah. could. I mean, I, I think it, it, doesn't, yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't have to, and it, might, it probably wouldn't be to like, 2025 maybe that you'd see an actual impact i would guess from like if it went all the way to something right laurel i mean i don't yeah i mean i think i always tell my clients first of all a lot of the commercial payers they don't all pay for these codes either some of them do united came out and said that they would so if you're developing a a monitoring solution um your evidence is going to be really important and i think even more so now going forward to really understand what's the incremental value of monitoring this patient? What's the outcomes that I'm paying for? And so that's what they're going to want to know. Yeah. And it's, these codes are young. I mean, in, in code, you know, geological time or whatever, like they've only been out since 2019, we had a pandemic in the middle and things take a while to settle out. So that was the other thing you kept hearing was, wait a minute, these codes just came out. Like, how do you develop the data? A lot of the studies are around, paid paid things, right? So now we can pay for them. Now, you know, somebody said there's a hundred things in clinicaltrials.gov, you know, that are studying the ethics, like give us a little breather here to, you know, prove it. But, you know, like all these things, it makes so much intuitive sense that you want to make monitoring available, not just the patient has to schlep into the office, especially if they're rural or something, but actually, you know, to do this at home, to do it more frequently, to see these trends, it makes so much sense. It makes a lot of sense in a pitch deck for raising money. Um, well, it does, but I have to like push back a little and, and right. not to get kicked off this podcast, but you're asking someone to pay for something. And if you have absolutely no proof that it's providing any value, why should they pay for it? You know, the, the reason they paid for their congestive heart failure monitoring is a ton of evidence out there. Um, that these patients could be monitored and that you could get better outcomes. So I, I see where you're coming, and it does look good on an investor deck, but I've seen some of these solutions and you're like, really? Because <laughs> you just yeah. don't always know. So I think I think we have to look at it sort of in both sides in terms of we only have X amount of money to spend on healthcare and we should be spending on things that have value, I think. Yeah. 
Yeah, I might get kicked off I, this podcast. I set you up for that. I set you up to be the bad cop there, Laurel. I do. <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, let's see. So, Laurel, you and I um, did a podcast at the start of the pandemic, uh, and can you just, uh, and both of you, just just tell us what has happened with with market access, um, with um, what have we learned over the course of the of the pandemic? Uh, you know, there's been developments in the world of digital therapeutics, getting reimbursement or not getting reimbursement. Um, but people have been watching that closely. There's these RPM codes we just talked about. Uh, what is the story of the last, call it, three years uh, of the pandemic? Well, I'd like to step back a little bit and say, how are we defining market access? Because we often talk about market access as if it's reimbursement. But the true definition is really, does the patient have access to something? It's really giving access to the patient for innovations. That's what we all want. That's why we're in this business, to provide something valuable. And so I will say, just as a backdrop, um, we saw the use of digital solutions and telehealth just raise exponentially just because they had to during the pandemic, and especially in the areas of behavioral and telehealth. So I think that's a good thing from a market access perspective, because the very sort of foundation of market access for patients is, are they going to use it? Do they want to use it? Will the provider use it? Um, does it provide value? All of these kinds of things. Uh, we saw that it really does, and patients like telehealth solutions, and it does work. So I think that was a really good thing to come out of the pandemic. And um, Amy, I'll do, just I wanted to mention one other thing because this is a big one, I think, and that's the issue of equity that came out during the pandemic, we saw disproportionate numbers of uh, African-American, Latinx, um, indigenous people um, suffer from high rates of COVID for a number of different reasons, including like structural inequities. Um, you mentioned I sit on a board of a hospital, it's actually a safety net hospital, and we had some of the highest COVID rates in the state. And one of the reasons that we did is because people live in multiple family dwellings. Um, they live with multi-generational families. They had to go to work. They didn't have the option of sitting home and isolating. On, on Native American reservations, the Navajo Nation, for example, there are places on that reservation where there's no running water. So you tell people to isolate and they live in multi-generational family homes. So you tell people to isolate and wash their hands it doesn't work so well. So those kind of structural inequities became very um, apparent. And I'm sure all of you have seen all of the news around really the focus on equity. And for innovators, it's going to have two uh, impacts. I think um, people are more interested now in solutions that provide and address equity issues, but also thinking about if you have a wearable or you have a, um, you have a, a solution that requires broadband, is that going to limit access to people? And I think that's going to be an issue in terms of payment. And then also, I think the other issue would be um, AI algorithms, um, the machine learning algorithms. I We've seen the FDA come to play. There's a lot of payers working on this um, just because the question is, what data is in that algorithm? Is it going to work the same on a 39-year-old African-American woman as a 62-year-old white male? Because I don't want to pay for it if I don't have confidence in that algorithm. And so I think that puts a lot more on innovators to really think about the data sets that they're putting into those machine learning algorithms. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing to come out of the pandemic that we heard about last night as well is quality of life for, wait for it, providers. 
you know, I, I think there's been a lot of focus on patients and there should be. I mean, that's very good. Right. But providers, I mean, when you think of what they went through in the pandemic, how, the what happened to the workforce, not just physicians, but nursing, allied health, you know, huge um, staffing issues. I mean, we hear about it all the time, you know, among our clients that, you know, they just staffing is a huge issue across the board. Um, mental health, I mean, try finding an in-person provider now. You know, a lot of people retired early. Um, and, you know, the people who remain are super stressed out. Um, and, you know, so come back to the digital health solutions to the extent that they improve, you know, quality of life for the providers or their ability to, with fewer people, manage, you know, more patients because they're not doing a 20 minute office visit now that's scheduled and the, you know, have to see patients inpatient, but they can review data, you know, asynchronously and, and, you know, kind of fit more into their day. I think, you know, more and more, and, and as we build value models for people and stuff, you know, the provider issues, the staffing issues, you know, are huge. Um, and that certainly existed before the pandemic, but now is like crisis levels in some places. Right. Interesting. So, well, so a major theme of this, uh, this webinar is product strategy. And so, uh, there's a, there's an unfortunate story that happens to a lot of companies that have an L that have, that are med tech or maybe biotech companies, which is that it's really hard to build a product. And so they get to work and they have some IP and they build their product and it has some effectiveness. And then they run into issues like they have to get FDA approval and they have to get reimbursement. Uh, and very often uh, they're, the work they've done was was not quite right to get that approval and that reimbursement. And that's where strategy comes in, strategy at, at the beginning and getting it right. And this matters more than ever in a more capital constrained environment. And so, um, uh, so, and I, I know that's, that's something that both of you wanted to talk about. So why don't I kick that off? Uh, maybe Laurel first, uh, can you tell us about what, assume people in our audience are leaders, uh, product leaders, company leaders, and they face this dilemma, they're early in their journey or they're or they're still at a point where they can course correct. Um, what are you seeing? What are some of the pitfalls and how do you get it right first? Um, for me, the one of the biggest things and prim the primary, I, I would say, risk to market adoption is not getting that clinical problem right. Like who? what is the clinical problem you're solving and for whom? And is it big enough for someone to want to pay for it? That seems like a pretty basic thing, but that's going to inform everything. Your evidence, your reimbursement pathways, where's the site of service that you're trying? Are you trying to change a site of service? So understanding all of that um, up front is critical for me um, because if you don't get that right, you won't get anything else right. And uh, oftentimes I've seen decks and things like that where people, for example, the number of congestive heart failure patients is X amount, so therefore the market is this big. And what I have to say is you're not solving congestive heart failure, but you're solving something perhaps in there, something with a type of monitoring or diagnosis or treatment. And so really defining what that is and then testing it to make sure that it's something that is marketable and that you're not answering questions no one is asking. I think that's the big, the big thing for me to start with. Would you agree with that, Amy? I think you would as we've talked yeah. about this. Yeah. It's funny because Laurel and I often pass these, folks back and forth is like, what are they trying to solve for? Is it a payment problem? Is it a business model problem? You know, is it a business strategy problem? And what I see a lot is, 
you know, people get ahead of themselves in sort of assuming a certain revenue flow before they've really figured out their their business model and their business strategy, you know, first. So um, some of that comes down to f- not being afraid to start small and gain some traction in a, in a focused area where it's a no brainer that you add value where you have champions, even if it's like a small market. Also, if you can leverage any non-dilutive funding or any, anything, anything else to kind of get started in a small area where there's just such an obvious value proposition, um, you can gain some experience and kind of build on that kind of the capital efficient model. I think, you know, all the money floating about, you know, after we all got out of the pandemic shock and all of a sudden there was all this money and these huge raises and, you know, big promises made. But at the end of the day, people didn't really have the evidence. And it's not even just the study evidence, but the proof on the ground that, you know, they had something people should be willing to pay for, whether that's employers or CROs or, consumers or hospitals um, or payers, you know, in that list, they didn't even really know who they were asking money from. Right. You know, it was sort of a lot of, especially digital therapeutics, I think had this model of saying, we're going to have the path to market more like a device in terms of studies and sample sizes and endpoints, but we're going to have the payment more like a drug. And, you know, you, you know, even, five years ago, that felt like it was bound to crash because like at the end of the day, payers don't want to pay for anything. And so, you know, there might have just been a mismatch there. So I think it's really understanding your value, starting somewhere where you can get some early wins, building on that success, blocking and tackling kind of the old boring way maybe to do it rather than, you know, promise big, start big, go after big things, you know, and then fail. And then you're in a down round situation and layoffs. And we all see that happening now. So I think now. Yeah. Even on the reimbursement side, I think from an evidence perspective, you know, narrowing the problem narrows the amount of evidence you're going to have to develop because the bigger the problem and the bigger the population, the more evidence you're going to have to even be uh, statistically significant, much less clinically significant. So really understanding that. I will say a little bit of the flip side is though, understand what your pathway is going forward when you're thinking about your regulatory label, because you don't want to box yourself into something in your regulatory label that you're going to have to go back to the FDA in a week, you know, or not a week, but a year or so and say, I want to add this condition or that condition. Um, you know, I, I am not a regulatory uh, expert, but I know enough to be dangerous, I guess. And I would say that one of the things I would really think about is how broad can I make this label? You know, it, talk about what it does, not necessarily what it's going to be used for, because what it's going to be used for is going to be determined in coverage. And to the extent that the FDA will allow you a broader label, for example, in imaging, you'll often see things like... Um, you know, MRI of the brain, for example, or whatever. It doesn't talk about what diseases you're particularly targeting in the brain, because if it did, you'd have to go back every time you add a disease. So that's the other sort of risk I see in some of this is understanding that too, so that you're mapping out your whole program. But like Amy said, don't start so big because it's going to take a long time to get to market with that and and create any revenue on that. Yeah, you, yeah, absolutely. And, 
you know, the other thing is do the full math. Like you see these things where it's like, oh, we could save this much per patient and blah, blah. But do the math. If you're targeting like diabetes or hypertension, if everyone were to use your solution, it would be it would tank the U.S. healthcare system. Like that's not going to be a thing. Right. Do the full math, like multiply by the number of patients. So, you know, to Laurel's point, you really want to, you know, give people bites they can, you know, they can manage and build on that success over time. I mean, you can still tell a big story, you know, and to Laurel's point, not just from a regulatory standpoint, but from a business standpoint, if you do start in some sub high value subsegment or something, make sure it's on critical path to the bigger story. You know, you don't want to take a full, I've seen people get grant money and all of a sudden they're in a completely, you know, they're studying their thing in bovine and cow cows or something. And then, (laughs) you know, they're like totally because they got some money, but um, so you don't want to go off course. Um, you want to make sure it fits with the vision and build, and is something you can build on. But you know, take a reasonable bite because somewhere somebody's not going to go with you to the big thing right away. <laughs> you know, they're just not. And you know, that's a really I had heard that advice from one of the more successful digital therapeutic companies at a conference. He was talking about it, and um, his whole strategy was please focus. Because throwing spaghetti on the wall and hoping something sticks or every time somebody mentions, oh, you could use it for this or you could do this, um, people get excited about those kind of things. But the reality is, is you're never going to be able to do that. So really focus on the most significant problem, the thing that you can do, um, you know, and that's fairly small enough for you able to do it and go from there. And I think there's some good examples out there of companies like Omada started with uh, weight loss uh, with diabetes. That was a good example, I think, of starting with something and then building on that as they go. Pairs another one. They started with Reset O. Now they're doing some sleep stuff and they're continuing to add to their portfolio. But they didn't try to do that all at once. So. So any any other examples of a, a company sort of getting its strategy right first and avoiding pitfalls and being capital efficient uh, that just just to help us make this more concrete when we think of a, a product leader starting at the beginning? I mean, there's yeah. there's some interesting ones out there. One I've always liked is Barty. I know that fell into the whole payment situation with extended Holter and, you know, got kind of stuck. But Barty has an ECG, you know, diagnostic, basically leveraging existing codes. But it was a crowded space, a mature space. But they they had this one feature that was really beneficial to see in certain patient types. And they just really stuck to that messaging and kind of built a core audience for it enough you know, where eventually they, they were acquired. Um, you know, I, I felt like they were very focused, very service oriented and kind of build on their success over time. Um, and the end they did well, um, they did get, you know, even a mature code, you know, that, I don't know if you all followed the I rhythm thing, but that's a good lesson learned of, you know, they had built a whole business went public. We're doing really well based on uh, like a temporary code that was due to like convert to a permanent code. And, you know, the payers, because they don't want to pay for anything. Remember that they don't want to pay for things. I mean, that you know, you have to really convince them. Well, <laughs> I mean, they do want to pay, but I mean, it's hard. It's hard. I have to keep sticking up for them here. I know. I know. I keep baiting you to, to fight me. But but it's not like they're waiting around saying, what else can I pay for? Is that a fair statement? That's a fair statement. I mean, none of us are really. It's like, no. but, but 
you know, and uh, the company that comes to mind for me is VizAI. Um, they were the first AI software to be paid as an, they were in the inpatient system. So it's a little bit different pay, me, payment mechanism, but they were able to secure an add-on payment with Medicare, which is the first one that ever was granted to a company like that because they did, they played it really smart. They identified stroke. Um, it was a huge quality indicator for Medicare. They really cared about that problem and they built their evidence base and they were able to secure an add-on payment. And I think that's always an example I like to use just because I feel like they, they did a great job um, just really honing in on the problem. Propeller's another one. They were able to say, you know, we're going to focus on these COPD patients at this stage, the, these asthma patients, these are the outcomes we're going to get. And that's how they were able to um, be successful, I think. Yeah, heart, heart flow is another one where, you know, they right. were analysis of CT scans to look at ischemia and they had a very clear story. They actually de-risked it in the UK first, which is unusual by saying, you know, there's a certain number of people that get sent to the cath lab and cost you money who end up with a negative cath. And like, wouldn't it be great if you could have fewer negative caths? And it's sort of a win-win in the sense that, you know, those are not well-paying if you're not doing an intervention and, you know, they kind of figured out the whole story and they could quantify it. And they, it was a very specific risk cohort, like not super high and not super low and they could define it and they could show outcomes and they, they got a code. Um, you know, there were some roller coaster on that as well, but, you know, they did get a code and, um, you know, I think it's been a good story overall and not without its hiccups for sure. It will be. They had a CPT3 codes that they used, which have been converted to a one CPT1 code, which is going through the ruck and rulemaking process. So it'll be interesting to see the outcome of that, to see the actual payment that they get, whether they're a zero patch story or they're actually um, uh, do well. So we'll just have to see. Yeah. And Amy building, oh, those are great examples. And Amy building on what you said, um, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of uh, payer chief medical officers or payers who are who make decisions around what to reimburse, uh, and uh, a recurring refrain I hear from them is that they are very they're very skeptical and they think that a lot of the things that, that they are sold on and a lot of things that they have to buy, the, the phrase they use is that it increases utilization without improving outcomes. That is what that what and so. If you're pitching them something, you know, bear in mind that they are pitched, you know, something every single day, uh, and uh, and most of them they say no to, uh, and that they uh, that they're they're assuming that you're going to increase the utilization of of care services and, and product purchases without improving outcomes, and you have to you have to prove to them that uh, you actually you have outcomes and they're better than what's out there right now, so. And they have been control the bar, like in drugs and, you know, pharma industry, like you set a hurdle for your clinical trial, you prove your efficacy in your big trial, you get approval and you've sort of not always, but more in a sense, kind of set that bar. You've, you know, all the risk is up front or a lot of the risk up front um, with, with some exceptions, whereas devices, they can kind of move the bar around. I mean, you know, it's not like there's a predicted bar. You know, it's not like you're doing a huge RCT usually and everyone understands, you know, if you prove you're efficacious, you, you can't really deny people that therapy in some way who really need it. But I know that's an oversimplification, but I, I do think that transparency in terms of what those, you know, hurdles are to get payment 
you know, would be more helpful. And I think we're lacking that on the sort of digital health devices side. I of think that. we're lacking it, period. Um, it's a really, you know, when you look at, for example, we don't have qualities because we do some um, health economics sort of, but it's not based on any kind of threshold. So it's sort of, I know it when I see it kind of thing. Um, but the other thing I was going to say too, in response to what you were talking about, Amy, is that, um, is that one way you can mitigate the risk of that is to talk to payers first before you go down this path. I do a lot of primary research. Other firms do too with payers to, to check with them. Um, is your value statement of strategic importance to them? Would they be willing to pay for it? Under what circumstances? This is my evidence. Do you agree with the size, the outcomes, the durability issues, all of those things? And the other thing I was going to say too is just know that health economic models developed by companies are meaningless to payers because there's too much um, risk of bias in that. So before you spend a lot of time and money on health economic models, you want to make sure that you're not, um, that they would be credible from a payer perspective, at least. So um, in, what have we seen in terms of reimbursement models uh, that over time we're learning, you know, are working for companies or aren't working for companies? Um, I've heard a critique recently where, um, you know, the three of the public prescription digital therapeutics companies that would be better Achille and Pear um, were trading so low that in some cases they're trading below cash. And I heard a critique that said that that, that proves that the selling a di prescription digital therapeutic at a drug price point as a model doesn't work. Um, uh, but alternately, I've also heard um, so some companies say they had success selling a digital therapeutic as as a five thousand dollar piece of medical equipment. Um, so those are two very different uh, approaches, and one one where we seem to be seeing some negative feedback on one you know, allegedly positive feedback on. Um, what are some some models out there that you're seeing that are working now or they're not working now? Well, I think um, we've seen a lot of progress in this area. We have sort of two challenges here. First of all, Medicare, there is a, a benefit program. They're defined benefit program, which means that they can't pay for something for which there's not a benefit category. And there's not a benefit category for digital therapeutics. So that's the first problem when you talk about benefit categories, because that those are set by Congress. And there has been some legislation um, that the Digital Therapeutics Alliance and others have uh, brought forward to Congress. It's kind of just sat there right now. It's kind of like when we were arguing about the telehealth benefit, um, because every time you have a piece of legislation, it has to go to um, the Congressional Budget Office to score. And half the time it scores very high because they're not looking at cost offsets. They're just looking at adding a new benefit. And so that's a challenge here. But um, in terms of the commercial payers, and I will say that Medicare Advantage um, is growing in terms of, I don't know if y'all saw the, the, um, the announcement by Human, Humana where they're, um, they're getting out of the employer business and they're going to focus solely on public uh, things. So they're really focused. So we're getting bigger and bigger um, pieces of the population that are covered under Medicare Advantage. And they do have flexibility in some of this. And so um, some of the companies have been successful with sort of alternate business models uh, per member per month, uh, prescription, uh, subscription type models, um, those kinds of ways to pay, risk sharing models. I, 
typically risk sharing is not for the long haul and not for the faint of heart because the payment cycles are long and it, it takes it's a lot of negotiation, but it's a good way to get your foot in the door. We've also seen Express Scripts and Optum and other sort of PBM like um, organizations that are acting as the middle person between the, for example, employer or the payer and the similar to a PBM and basically managing these for you. Those have been interesting to watch. And then Highmark Blue Cross just announced recently that they were going to um, pay for digital solutions, digital therapeutics. There's still, I think how they're going to do that is not clear yet, but I think it's a good milestone to say that people are realizing the value of it. And so there are things happening, but as far as Medicare, traditional Medicare, that only way that's going to happen is if the law changes. So, yeah, I, I feel like digital therapeutics, like I can get behind them. I think, you know, these, these things have retrained our brains you know, so much. And, and I think you saw, you know, who, who hasn't been reprogrammed by these things in, in some sense. So I, I think there's lo logic and you can flash forward and imagine a future where, you know, that really, you really show, you know, clinical benefit, even like physiologic, you know, or, or changes on scans and things. I'm sure that's part of what they're doing, but, you know, maybe digital health has just discovered its valley of death, you know, uh, there was so much excitement around them. And then, you know, they had some early successes, maybe, you know, one hit things here and there. But as a category, it's really unproven. So, you know, a lot of investment went in. Now the progress is so much slower because it's like hand to hand combat. You know, there you got to fight with each payer, each employer, you know. So I always wonder, like, is there that space between a consumer device, you know, what, the other thing that people ignore is how much consumers pay for healthcare now. And that, if you see the numbers on that, that's been growing like rapidly every year as we all feel. And, you know, there are other buckets of money, like benefits, other benefits, flexible spending and other benefits that might play somewhat of a role if things are priced appropriately um, to just get started. Plus, I mean, one success factor with all these things is continued engagement by the patient, you know, and everyone wants to see not just that you can get it out there, but it, people will continually engage and use it. So the more a consumer is involved in that, probably the better engagement you're going to have. So, you know, I think we need to like fully explore consumer strategies and other ways to pay for this than just traditional reimbursement as well. You know, again, if, if you can price it right and if you can, you know, be more capital efficient, how you develop these things. So I think there's the high science, big bet part, but that's like going to take years, years and years to fully gel. And maybe there's a segmentation to a different part that you can get early traction kind of build on in a more capital efficient way that maybe the consumer is bearing more of it, or it's not going after traditional reimbursement pathways. Uh, we need some different model for sure, because it hasn't worked yet. But I also think that um, we have to remember the provider in all of this. And I, I think back to when automated external defibrillators were first introduced on the market. That was a product that I worked on. And um, it took a lot of convincing of the provider community, particularly the cardiology community, that this was a viable device. And because people would go to their doctor and say, do I need one of these? And they go, hmm, you know, uh, 
the reaction was sort of lukewarm. That has changed significantly, in, but that took a lot of, you know, work by the American Heart Association, the Red Cross, you know, the companies. And so I think it took legislation change. And with digital therapeutics, the AMA just did a big survey with Manat. And it's a very interesting, I would encourage people to look at that because they just show it's kind of a mixed bag between the provider, um, between the payer, between the patient, um, all of these different stakeholders in this whole thing, there's just not a good uh, sort of, I think, cohesive view of digital therapeutics. And until we get to that point, I think, Amy, you're right, you're going to have to think about different ways to pay for this because it's not just the payer making the decision. They're going to ask their, they're going to ask the specialty docs, what do you think of this? And so all of these things, these pieces come into play. So let me throw out a, a dilemma that I've seen a lot of digital therapeutics companies um, uh, have, which is that their product in some way replaces skilled labor um, from a clinician. Uh, so they've taken the skill from, from the clinician's skilled labor and they've put it in software and a device, for example. And you could imagine this with um, physical therapy, for example, allowing a, a patient to do physical therapy on their own with the help of software and a, and a device instead of being there one-on-one -on -one with a with a with a, a therapist with a physical therapist, etc. Um, and so this this then causes oftentimes the digital therapeutic to, to not be adopted by the clinician um, because it's a threat to the clinician. They they their billing is the same, um, but now they're they're buying a piece of technology, so some of their money goes out the door, um, and it, it replaces them. Uh, and so uh, have, have you seen this problem and what are some of the solutions to it? For example, a solution might be that maybe the, the clinician can, see, can spend less time per patient, see more patients, uh, or alternately there could be a, a, um, a home billing code, for example, the patient uses it at home and, and the clinician checks in and sees they've done it and sees what their results are. Um, how do you address the issue of digital therapeutics being a threat to the skilled labor of clinicians? I think, Steve, you have to differentiate between a digital solution and a digital therapeutic because a lot of what you're talking about is not a digital therapeutic. It's virtual care that you're able to deliver. Um, Hinge Health, for example, does a great job with physical therapy. There's a lot of um, physical therapy groups that actually use virtual care for people in between office visits. So I think I haven't heard that as much. I would think... Um, you know, certainly if you're stealing patients from a provider, but believe me, providers have more than enough patients right now. So I just think you have to be careful because a true digital therapeutic, there's no provider involvement in it. And that's where they sort of get into this. Is it a drug or a medical benefit? Because the physician is prescribing the digital therapeutic and the patient is going home and using it. And sometimes it's an adjunct to regular care. So it kind of depends on how the digital therapeutic is being used in that environment um, or the digital solution. Is it, I want you to go home and do these exercises and this will help you do that. And it also will send me some data around how you're achieving this or have you done your exercises every day. I'm using the physical therapy. And that was really the thinking behind the remote therapeutic monitoring codes to really see is the therapy being used? How is it working? Are there issues with that? It can be self-reported, which is different than the RPM codes. So that was something else. When you have an actual digital therapeutic, 
I would want to know in what context it's being used and by whom, and is it an adjunct to care or is it just replacing care? Because there's not very many of them that will actually replace care. Well, and I, I think the bad situation that you have with some of these technologies is that the physician has no gain to it. So there's nothing no economic gain to it, but they have some responsibility like for setting parameters or, you know, prescribing or, or even prescribing, even, you know, sometimes a de-risking strategy for something that's like involves algorithms and AI is say, well, we're not going to set the thresholds or the parameters. The physician can do that. You know, they can have that risk, you know. Um, so you give them the risk, but they have no in other incentive, no other benefit or economic benefit coming to them, you know, so I would just step back and say that's part of getting it right the first time is really understand your customer because it's a whole lot different what you said, Steve, if you're going into interventional cardiology or spine surgery, where, you know, it's much more economically driven, quite frankly, and also competitive and, um, you know, versus psychiatry where, you know, I don't think there's any psychiatry that would psychiatrist that would fight you for patients right now. Like, you know, we, they need extenders. Um, and I think a lot of these can fit, like you were saying, Laurel, in the in-between spaces, you know, or for people who can't access care. So I, I think it's very know your customer, know their personality type, know the market you're getting into very readily. I mean, that said, I, I worked for a company that our core uh, you know, uh, customers anesthesia. And we basically told them, oh, your patients wake up during surgery and we can help that, you know, and we pissed off our core customer because <laughs> you know, like, why are you saying to our patients that they wake up during surgery? This is really bad. And we fought, you know, we created, you know, so it could have, I of course, of course joined after that big battle happened. And, you know, we had some who loved us and some who hated us. But, you know, when that movie came out about the patient waking up during surgery, we people thought <laughs> we did it. People thought we were behind it. It's like, do you know our marketing budget? Really, we're not making Hollywood movies. Yeah. But, but know your customer. I mean, if you go into a space, you know, an environment, a shark den, you know, shark pit or whatever, you know, it, of a specialty, know that. And know you've got to cut them in, you know, um, somehow. It also depends on the payment model that they're operating under, um, because if you're in a clinically integrated network or an um, HCO or something like that, um, that's a lot different than, for example, a practice that's living and dying by the RVUs that they're getting. Like they need to, you know, to bill those. And so I think Amy's right. Know who your customer is and really don't assume things about your customer. I see a lot of uh, companies thinking they're going to target primary care physicians. Primary care physicians are so busy right now that if you're adding one more thing or you're asking them to pay for something when their payments are a lot lower, even though they've been they've been raised a bit, um, you got to really think about it. Is that something that's really, you know, so I think knowing your customer, knowing what their needs are, and don't assume things about different um, physician groups until you talk to them. That's happened a lot in imaging AI because there's a lot of freestanding imaging centers that are still, uh, you know, really dependent on the, the payments from the claims. And so if you want them to buy an AI product and there's no reimbursement, that's an added expense for them. So then you have to think about what's the offsets to that and the value for them that would make them overlook some of that. Or like HeartFlow kind of stepped into it between cardiology and radiology because they're like a radiology solution that sort of, you know, 
impacts a cardiology procedure. It's like, whoopsie. Absolutely. You know, you get in these turf battles and those are other things. So thinking about all of that is really important. Great. Well, so let me now call on our audience. Um, if you're in our audience, you're welcome to raise your hand and go into the caller uh, queue. Um, you can also ask a question in the chat. Uh, and uh, and then if you want to be anonymous, you can uh, write to me, Stephen at WardellAdvisorsLLC.com, Stephen at WardellAdvisorsLLC.com. So we have a question in the chat, uh, and it is, what would you consider to be the most important long-term strategy considerations for a med tech and or medtech ortho device uh, that's still in rat pig trials. If you've already ensured that you're solving a correct problem by talking to surgeons, procurement reps, etc., and know your regulatory pathway. So what's the most important long-term strategy consideration? I go back to what Laurel said, you know, know the problem you're solving, understand the extent of the problem, um, I think also for innovators in these spaces, a very important thing that affects your whole long-term strategy is, am I a product or am I a company? You know, is this, you know, and that affects how you finance it, how capital efficient you are, how much money you raise, you know, just know what you are and it's fine to be either, but it really impacts, you know, how you approach things. Also, if you're, get really good pictures. I feel like those, you know, if anything in ortho and animal trials, like funding gets done by, by images, you know? Um, so make sure you get really good <laughs> images. That's not really a long-term strategy. It's more short-term tactic, but um, yeah. I, I would also say that know who your financial stakeholder is because surgeons might really love your product and most doctors love this stuff until you ask them to write a check for it. So I think really understand how will this, something like this be paid for? Is it uh, in the capital equipment budget of the hospital? Is it a departmental um, spend? And therefore making sure that you're speaking to the department heads about whether this is, um, do they do enough of these type of surgeries to, to, because you might be solving a problem, but is it big enough for them to fit into their budgets? I will say hospitals are very squeezed right now with budgets. Um, you know, contract labor is killing them across the country. Um, and and they, they're being more and more particular about the money that they're going to spend. And it's not just the hospital I represent, it's every hospital that you read about in different degrees. And so really understanding, I think, who the financial stakeholder is, is and understand what the value to them is and what, if they're operating under a DRG, for example, so a bundled payment, what other things are in that bundled payment and how is this going to impact that in terms of the cost of it? Because it likely is going to be bundled. So, And uh, Laurel and Amy, one topic that we raised uh, before the call was the idea of um, avoiding wasting money on doomed commercial launches or so how do you know if your commercial launch is going to be doomed and, and how can you avoid wasting money uh, on a doomed commercial launch? I just do your homework, you know? I, I think it's like, and do it early. Don't check boxes and think, okay, now I'm good. So I've seen a lot, well, now I have FDA clearance. Well, that's good, but that's like the, the lowest bar for a reimbursement. So really understand, you know, sort of do your homework up front, you know, what, what is the, and 
I do sort of obviously the reimbursement piece, but often Amy and I work together because she's looking at what's your mar- go-to-market strategy, what's your pricing strategy, all of these kinds of things um, that are really important to do um, because you don't want to get so far down the pathway and then find out, oh, there is no reimbursement for this. Or there's a million other type of solutions in development that I'm going to have to compete with. So I'm sure you have more, Amy, that you can think of. Yeah, I always think of like, maybe it's working with engineers all the time, but like failure modes. What are the, what are the commercial launch failure modes? And one is your product's not ready for prime time. So you push it out there. And the minute, you know, if you have investors that are a little tired and the minute you get it out there and get somebody to pay for your, you know, whatever that's not ready, they're going to say, what if you threw 10 more reps at it? Could you just juice up sales, get me out of this, get me an exit, get some revenue. And the problem is like, it's not scalable because your product's not ready, you know? So I think number one, don't, don't go to revenue too fast, you know, and box yourself in to just let me throw reps at it and see if it'll sell, like make sure you have product market fit first. Um, in whatever space you're going after, that's the other reason to focus because, you know, it might be ready for one application, not another. Um, so I think just, you know, that's a failure mode. It's just launching too early and the product's not ready. Um, right, because early adopters have long memories too. So trying to um, trying to sort of overcome sort of those early impressions of that, um, uh, we've seen that many times where, um, where they had your support, you, you had their support and then you don't. And that's hard, especially if they're KOLs. So. Yeah. I mean, the other failure mode is you do go out fast, you do get revenue growth, you do hire the 10 reps. Um, but then you have an, uh, you went out so fast that you kind of lose control and no matter what you have and how good it is and how good the product market fit, there's something that's going to happen to your long memory situation that you're going to end up pulling back, trying to understand, having a delay, a hiccup, your competitors, you know, take advantage of it. So I think a lot of that is, you know, I tend to say, don't go broad first, you know, don't get too many customers early, you know, work out the kinks, you know, so you're not discovering something later. I mean, we talked about the failure mode too, of like, if you've got a shaky code, I mean, I've seen the breakthrough thing is a real setup for, for failure too, because even though it's great and you can get payment and I got breakthrough designation. It's like, okay, (laughs) now what? I mean, I think there are a couple I won't mention, but you know, companies out there that have done amazing things on temporary reimbursement codes that, the minute they end, I know the specialties they're in, it will go to zero or close to zero. Like, you know, so I think also, you know, make sure you're investing in those early market days. If you have some sort of temporary reimbursement situation to put yourself in place to convert those to a more permanent situation and not just drive revenue. Um, Cause I, they have, there are, there are examples. Well, that's why we can, you and I can mention like two or three because it's two or three and there's like 20, hundred other codes there that are just languishing um, because they haven't, you know, they haven't gone far. So, yeah. All right. Did we give you enough examples? That's great. So the next question is about artificial intelligence. And so um, it, it is from the health bear who asks uh, chat GPT and AI are all the rage these days. Are there any applications of AI that you're tired of seeing and are there applications of AI that you're surprised no one has tried yet? So let me actually jump in with, a, uh, with some thoughts on this first and then I'd love to get your reaction. So I think the best use of, of AI I've ever seen is, is not chat GPT, this is in healthcare. Um, 
It is machine vision uh, being used on pathology slides um, to be able to, to do 10 times or 100 times uh, the skilled labor on behalf of a pathologist and then write a report uh, that the pathologist, their job now is to spend less time just reading the report, looking at the special sections of the report, seeing if they agree with the report. So for example, a pathologist might seek to look at, at 10 slides and at 300 cells per slide um, whereas uh, machine learning could look at um, 100 slides and 3,000 cells per slide, for example, easily. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and so that's one of the best uses. Another interesting use is of AI is in spotting gaps in care in the billing record, um, uh, in, in the EMR record. And so here, um, this, is, uh, this is a really good example because it in theory provides better care for patients, but it also provides more, more billable actions for providers at the same time. So, you know, it, it, it tastes great and it's less filling. It's good for the patient and it's good for the provider. Um, and you don't need chat GPT for that. We've had that for a while that uses algorithmic AI, just you know, very simple algorithmic AI. And then the last would be diagno diagnosis through AI. Uh, and we've had that this for a while. And once again, this is using simple algorithmic AI, not, um, Chat not doesn't need large language models and Chat GPT uh, for it, but those are some examples I like, uh, and I I haven't seen. I, I know AI is is a it's practically a, a mandatory buzzword if you have a booth at a at a at a healthcare convention uh, these days, um, and so. But I I I'm not thinking of any that I'm tired of seeing, but those are three of the best applications of of AI um, that I've seen. So so wh why don't we just make this broader AI topic? And uh, Amy and Laurel, any 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 reactions to that? Well, I think the term AI is this big, broad term that can mean a lot of things. And the AMA and the DEMPAG and other groups have done a lot of work in trying to put some language around a taxonomy around AI. So the AI framework, which is still um, being evolving, um, it was introduced about a year ago and it divides clinical AI. Now, what you're talking about billing and things, I would put that in a different category, but actually used in clinical settings, um, you have assistive you have augmentative and you have autonomous. So a great example of an autonomous AI would be IDXDR. Um, they are a standalone, uh, they are standalone diabetic retinopathy um, diagnostic. And they got a CPT-1 code. There's been some issues with payment around that. This is what Medicare is struggling with because they tend to view software as an indirect practice expense. And so, um, so there, the payment has to evolve around that. But then you have uh, lots of examples of augmentative AI, which is making a huge difference in imaging, for example, you know, in terms of being able to spot uh, lung lesions that the, the, that the, naked eye or the radiologist may not be able to see. I've seen all kinds of different applications of that in radiology is huge. And then you have the assistive AI, which is more like CAD. So it's computer-aided detection. It actually detects things, but it doesn't do anything in terms of actually analyzing them. But the augmentative uh, category will turn some of that information, use machine learning to be able to turn it into um, a clinically meaningful data that the physician can then use to make a clinical decision. So I think it depends on what kind of AI you're talking about. Um, and you're right, everybody uses that term, but that's when I mentioned that issue around the algorithm that's building your AI. I think that's going to be the big thing going forward in terms of what data went into this algorithm that I can trust it without it 
um, giving me either a wrong diagnosis or telling me something about this patient that's that's going to hurt the patient. So I think that the, the AMA tends to use the term augmentative intelligence as opposed to uh, artificial intelligence. You can quibble about the terminology, but it's really an assistant um, device or uh, software for physicians. Yeah, I think there's a philosophical thing about how patients and society perceive risk, the risk of a mistake from a human versus AI. Right. And, you know, I, I think we're not very tolerant of, of risk of, of a mistake from AI, whereas a human, you know, we kind of accept judgment, even if you're wrong, like it's, there's some process you can, you can follow or, or something, you know? So I think there's just that barrier. The one I'm a little tired of is I, I get a million things coming my way of, being able to tell a lot about somebody just from their voice or their facial expression or their, are they depressed or they having a heart attack or they, you know, I, I, you know, everything, you know, just there's, so my firm S2N stands for signal to noise. It's a long story. We're nerds, but um, you know, it is about signal to noise and there's so much noise in a lot of this stuff. And it's like, it might be, you know, sensitive without being specific and, you know, it can pick up a lot of stuff. And I, I just think it's, it's really hard. Like at some point, step back and say, can you really do what you're saying you can do? And how long would that really take? How much data do you need? Where are you getting this data? And then to Laurel's point, like, have you considered all the variations uh, of the data points? You know, their trials are like, well, we, you know, selected a very pristine set of people who don't have any issues. And you know, they're like, work the whole thing out and say, can I actually get there or should I try to solve some more augmentative thing or, you know, um, so I'm tired of those. And I think, you know, I think the thing, and I just wanted to add one more thing that we have to remember is that the artificial intelligence, the artificial in artificial intelligence, it's not the same thing as a human. You don't have the context, the ability, the empathy to be able to do things like that. And so I just get a little tired of, companies or people that want to position AI as a replacement for a human because you can't do that. And I think there's a lot of ethical issues with that as well. And so, you know, to that point, you know, really thinking about how can they be assistive to humans? How can they really help patients? But they are, it is artificial intelligence. That's what it is. So. And let me just add some, some sort of interesting distinctions that, that I've seen. So in, in rich countries, um, you may see artificial intelligence used, and uh, and so it may be used in radiology, for example, but you'll still have a radiologist in the loop. They'll just be doing more, and you'll still have a primary care physician in the loop. And the radiologist may look at a an excellent report prepared by an artificial intelligence uh, agent, and then look, and it's calling out certain noticed factors, and the now the radiologist's job is to review that and agree or disagree. Um, and but they didn't have to write the report from 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 fundamentals, um, and uh, then uh, that's also taken into account by a primary care physician as well. Um, and so, but in poor countries, we may see someone who has a, a nurse practitioner and no primary care physician and no radiologist, um, but they still get a scan and then they get a report. Um, and then, but it's a difference between uh, getting a scan with no expensive professionals involved versus nothing. For, for in, in a poor country, and so, you, and so you, there, there may be this this regulatory difference, um, and then there's actually kind of a hope that in in uh, less developed countries, um, their quality rises so high over time 
that they can come in and lower the cost of of care in, in high cost countries as well, perhaps with their with their solutions. Um, I've also heard, you know, there's an interesting ethical dilemma, which is that um, you might have an AI diagnostic, uh, to competing AI diagnostic algorithms, and some of them are very explainable. They can explain exactly why they have made the decision that they have. They make their, the 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 um, the diagnosis that they've made. Um, and these, if they're very explainable, they may cost more to make, they may uh, cost, take longer to make, uh, and they may not be perfect. They may be better than doctors. Um, so if a doctor is 95% correct, this these explainable AIs may be 97% correct. And then you can have AI um, agents that are not explainable. They just look at large data sets, they come up with algorithms, and you can't explain why they do what they do. Um, and they might just, uh, cost less to create, take less time, and have a higher percent success rate, a 99% success rate, let's say. Um, and then you have this dilemma of which which do you use because they're, they're neither is perfect, both will get it wrong. Getting it wrong in healthcare can lead to someone dying. And then you have someone died because of a machine that can't explain itself versus someone died versus a, an algorithm that, that, that is very explainable can explain itself. And so that, that's kind of a, a moral dilemma that we may need to face in the future. Um, so, uh, uh, so those are some some interesting discussions I've heard about AI and healthcare. Yeah, so, yeah, um, yeah. Go ahead, Steve. I have to wrap. We have another question from this is from uh, from Dennis uh, in our audience uh, who writes, um, uh, and I, I'm really glad to be getting uh, chats in the chat room. You're also welcome to raise your hand and and be a caller as well. So, uh, but Dennis writes, uh, how critical is the reimbursement to be in place in order for a new product technology to be adopted widely in the USA. As a reference, Amy has mentioned the consciousness monitoring device, and that could be a good reference for what I'm asking about. Yeah. Hey, Dennis. <laughs> I know Dennis. Um, we, I, I think it depends, you know, in, in the case of like an inpatient technology, you know, that's used under a DRG or a capitated payment, your arguments really all are going to be to the hospital, you know, um, in the case of a conscious, you know, we, we tried to have a code for our consciousness monitor, but it was really just part of the DRG, you know, so it was really an argument to the hospital. So what are the arguments you can make? You can make a safety argument you know, you prevent some complication um, of the patient that ends up costing that hospital more and obviously bad outcomes are bad for everybody. Um, you can make a workflow efficiency improvement of some sort, um, you know, that you, you make a procedure shorter, stay shorter. Um, you can make a revenue argument. If you have this new toy, you, you get more patients and patients will choose you over competitor or you shorten things enough. You could fit in another patient or you free up a bed, you know, top line, you know, or bottom line improvement, too. Um, so I think there are lots of ways to make the case or maybe you just should do it because it's much better medicine. And even if it costs you more, it's the right thing to do. That's the toughest one. <laughs> Um, I think it's just making sure the benefit you're conveying is meaningful, you know? So if you're saving, you know, 5% of procedure time, no one's going to believe you that that's really a thing that you're going to do and it's not meaningful. Um, but it, yeah, if you're reducing some really burdensome complication, 
like massive bleeding or, or a reoperation risk or something, and you can show it in some reasonable time frame. And that's always a trick too. Like if it's something happens two years down the road, that's not meaningful, but you know, if it's a complication that can occur, like, you know, like a acute kidney injury is what I've been working on a lot. You know, if you can prevent that from happening, that that is very meaningful. Um, or if you can detect it early and get it treated, it can be very meaningful for the patient acutely and for their whole life. So, you know, I think know, know what your impact is, who your customer is, who's paying, what the benefit is. Uh, is it meaningful? Can you prove it? Yeah, and I would just, I would add to that, know the site of service and how that, um, where it's being um, done is going to make a big difference. Amy, what you mentioned is the hospital is typically going to be bundled. If it's in the physician office, and then, then that, that might be a different story, or an ambulatory surgery center or an outpatient center or in the home. All of these settings have different implications and uh, as to whether or not you're going to because even if it's just the patient's using it, are you asking the patient to write a check for it? Um, because many physicians are reticent to write a, a prescription for something that they're going to then say to the patient, oh, and by the way, you have to spend X amount of money on doing this. And then there is an equity issue in there, too. So I think um, really all of the things you mentioned and understanding um, where it's going to be used and how it will be paid. Or just a shift um, site of service. That's the other thing. It could. That's. Exactly. If you're moving it from, for example, the, the physician office to the home or from the hospital to the physician office, that's going to change the payment methodology and may change. Um, I don't know you, Dennis, but I guess Amy does. It's going to change whether reimbursement is really critical. So That's great. And we have a little more time. And Dennis has just joined us as a caller. So, Dennis, I don't know if you have uh, uh, any more questions you can unmute uh, and ask. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. That's great. So Amy Laurel, any any concluding thoughts? Are we too am I too much of a downer? Am I too much a Debbie Downer or I don't know. No, I just I just want to say I don't think we're trying to be um I think we're realists. Um but we're both in this business because we love innovation and we know that there are things that are wrong in healthcare, patients that don't have access to care that need it and all these other things that that innovators are such a critical part and can really change healthcare. But you have to just know that when you're being disruptive, truly disruptive, it just takes a long time and you have to do your homework. But the return on investment can be huge for not only revenue, but also for patients. And so I think, I think don't get discouraged, just like don't go in it blindly and just know what you're in for. And I think most investors just wanna know that you know that. They don't necessarily expect you to have all your I's dotted and T's crossed, but they want you to, to understand that you understand and you have the, the resources to get the job done if it takes a long time or not, so. Yeah, that would be my go and I open <laughs> exactly. Know what you're getting into, and there's a difference between raising money and gain, getting valuation and creating value. And I think some some people are learning that the hard way right now. Um, but it doesn't mean you can't figure out a path forward. You know, create a execution plan, stick to it, be a little more capital efficient, a little more focused. Um, 
and just keep fighting the fight. It's hard. Yeah. That's great. Well, thank you. So you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk with Stephen Wardell. Our thanks to our guests, Laurel Sweeney, who is the founder of Access Strategies, and Amy Siegel, who's the founder of S2N Health. Um, you'll find a list of upcoming Investor Talk shows at stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter, where, where my handle is at Stephen Wardell. To get notice of upcoming Investor Talks, sign up at our MailChimp list. See you next time for The Future of Medicine is Exponential with uh, Dr. Daniel Kraft, the chairman of NextMed Health, tomorrow, Thursday, March 2nd at 4 p.m. Eastern. Uh, thanks and signing off. Uh, and bye-bye, Laurel and Amy. Thank, Thank you. you.